Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border Podcast. This podcast explores the humanitarian response along the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. My name is Brian Strasberger. And I'm Joe Noya. We're with Del Camino Jesuit Border Ministries, located in the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. This podcast aims to humanize the migrant experience by sharing stories from our ministry and highlighting some of the amazing work that people are doing along the border and throughout the country. The Jesuit Border Podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Let's begin. Vamos! In this episode, we're going to talk about broadening horizons. We'll be interviewing Annie Leone, who is a nurse midwife at the Holy Family Birth Center and care provider at the clinic at the Humanitarian Respite Center, or HRC, run by Catholic Charities that we visit twice a week. Stay tuned for that interview, but first we're going to talk a little bit about our own experiences of broadening horizons, and I think a good place to start is with you, Joe. You're still recently arrived here on the border, so maybe you could share a little bit with us about what that experience has been like and how it's helped to broaden your own horizons. Yeah, and I I think it's it helps to kind of understand the image, the domineering image that I had of the border and the way I used to see it, largely influenced by, you know, what you see in the media and the dominant image of a migrant that I had would have been a relatively young, single adult um, who is just coming to the United States looking for work. And that's about it. You know, really nothing broader <laughs> or more to it than that. And I remember it was one of the uh, the very first days in Reynosa visiting some of the, uh, the, the shelters there, especially Senda de Vida in uh, Reynosa. And seeing tents full of families, families of all different kinds of uh, backgrounds, different nationalities, um, seeing Haitians, a lot of Haitians at that time, uh, <clears throat> people from uh, Honduras and Guatemala, and then looking back today, uh, relatively recently, seeing so many Venezuelans and people of all sorts of different kinds of professional backgrounds as well, seeing people uh, who were. Um, who have experience in construction, people who are chefs, but also seeing doctors, seeing lawyers, seeing military officers, people of all different kinds of backgrounds. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we often invite people to come and come and see, you know, come and see, come and have an experience at the border because of the way it kind of shape and broaden your horizons, meeting people, families and professionals. I still remember when the Plaza of Reynosa, when, uh, you know, we needed some shelves to be built. And sure enough, there's a guy who was a shelf maker. Like that's what he does. And so uh, our friend Raphael took him to the lumber yard. He had everything, all the specs of the things that he needed to buy, bought all the things. And by the time we visited the next day, he had built all the shelving that we had requested from him, you know, to see these kind of pers- uh, professional skills that people can bring can be very impressive. And then also going beyond that, isn't so much the people that we encounter are seeking primarily work, we're really talking about people who are primarily seeking political asylum. People who are here along the border waiting for permission to enter the United States to make their case for political asylum. And it really becomes more like, honestly, kind of, I'm a movie buff, so I, I go to I go to movies for, for things. It's kind of like Casablanca in a way. People fleeing violence, people fleeing oppression and waiting for the permission and passage to go to the United States. 
Yeah, that's right. Our asylum law is super complex and complicated, but it's something that we've, you know, signed inter- international agreements basically to provide safety to people who are fleeing situations of violence. Uh, now, a lot of that asylum law is pretty dated and goes back to the time of World War II, where it's got this image of kind of Nazi Germany and people fleeing that. And the situation is just much more complex today. It's not necessarily Nazi Germany that's oppressing people, but it could be the local drug cartels that are as closely intertwined with the state political apparatus or with the local police force that uh, you it creates these situations of, of very deep insecurity for people. And that's a huge part of the push factor that drives people to leave their homes. And that's talking about a variety of countries. But in particular, we see the political situation in a country like Venezuela, for example, as being one that's really unstable. And speaking of a particular Venezuelan, I think of William. William was a uh, a relatively older Venezuelan migrant in the Matamoros uh, River camp. And he was a police officer and a, and a commander of some importance in Venezuela, but he would just would not bend to the dictatorship there and was forced to flee. And this is a, a very talented man, a talented, <clears throat> decisive, observant man, a man with really the kind of skills you need to be a, a police commander. And he brought those skills, in addition to the sensitivity to the needs of others, to the migrant camp in, uh, in, in Matamoros. And he would be like one of our main points of contact there. He would be looking to see what the needs are, who needs what clothes, who needs what shoes, who needs what kind of medicine. And he would bring those needs to us and we would do what we can to supply those needs. This very helpful man, really a a servant spirit. And he was just this man who was looking for political asylum. And does not meet so at all the the dominant images that you see in the in the in the U.S. media of of a migrant, a man fleeing oppression and trying to help. And he was a tremendous blessing to the people in uh, the Montemoros camp. A tremendous blessing to our ministry. And thank God he's in the U.S. right now. And I have no doubt that he will continue to be a blessing here in the United States. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's always impressive when you see, I'm just so moved, I, I should really say, moved when we have migrants who are living in the shelters themselves and how much they go out of their way to look for and care for the needs of other people. Like, you, you know, a migrant living in the river camp in Matamoros is inherently vulnerable. I mean, the river camp is just tents put up on the side of the river. Uh, anybody can get in and out. Uh, it's a very dangerous place. It's controlled by the cartel. And so no one we can really say is safe there. And it is literally squalor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are cooking over, over you know, an open fire or whatever. And yeah, I mean, it's the the rain, the mud. I mean, it's it's a ve- it paints a very uh, bleak picture of where someone has to live. And so for him to be going out of his way, looking for others' needs, caring for other needs, you know, someone who's like, right at the edge of the uh, parking area when we arrive and is seeing us off as we depart. I mean, it, it's moving. I mean, th- that's the reason we go. That's the reason we do that, right? Because of the, the way people respond and the way that people are getting involved and engaged in their own ways too. You can see that so many of these migrants also kind of take on a ministry for themselves. And they then themselves become ministers to other migrants. And they're caring for them, looking out for them, providing uh Moral support, because material support, they, they can't always do that. They're, these are people who are struggling to survive on their own, but constantly looking out for other people. That's right. Speaking about uh, 
dispelling stereotypes of your average migrant, I could talk a little bit about Surya, who's a 12-year-old girl from Guerrero. She's traveling just with her mom, Nora, just the two of them. And we met them at Casa del Migrante, the migrant shelter in Reynosa that we visit twice a week. And we first connected over math because uh, longtime listeners might remember that I am a math major. uh, And so... Uh, I don't really use that normally in my daily life here. Don't laugh. That's not a joke, Joe. We connected over math. No, you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm a liberal arts guy. (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, Surya was with a friend of hers who wanted to borrow a book. And so I took her into Casa de Migrante where they have a small library and picked out a couple books for her to look at. And I said to Surya, you know, would you like would you like a book to read, too? And she was not interested. She's like, no, I don't like to read. It's like what I really want to work on is my square roots. And that, <laughs> don't laugh, Joe. That was music to my ears. That was music. I've said you found the right you found the right Jesuit priest to say that to. So we sat down with uh, with some loose leaf paper and started working on square roots, and then we moved on to long division. And uh, you know, sort of you also like to practice uh, some English words and phrases too. And sometimes she would help us as our altar server. So uh, just involved in so many ways. Well, finally, she got her CBP-1 appointment. Her and her mom got this appointment to be able to present at a port of entry and enter the United States. And we were there at Casa de Migrante on her last day before she had to cross. Well, I arrive and I notice all her friends, this group of other kind of preteen girls that are at the shelter, gathered, gathering and giggling in a corner of the shelter. And they waved to me, oh, come on over, Father Brian, come on over. And so I wanted to see what they were doing. I mean, you want to talk about broadening horizons, a world that I am not very familiar with is the world of preteen girls. (laughs) But I saw what they were doing. They're making a little sign that said, Buen viaje, uh, Surya, you know, safe travels. And they were each drawing little individual pictures for her and writing like little notes and cards, like, I'll miss you and I love you and travel safe and that kind of thing. And they're making this little gift box to put all their cards in. Of course, Surya wasn't allowed to be there because they were planning all this and they wanted it to be a surprise for her. So even as she walked by from far away, they'd say, no, 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 you got to go away. You can't come over here now. It's kind of laughing as I was seeing all this happening. Um, and so then I went over uh, to talk to Surya briefly because I had to go visit another shelter first before I'd come back. And she started practicing some English phrases with me again. And uh, and one that she wanted to learn how to say was, quiero papas fritas, which <laughs> is Eng- in English would be, I want French fries. <laughs> she will go far. <laughs> <laughs> Got to learn those essentials. Hi, how are you? I want French fries. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, went to, the, went to this other shelter and they actually have like some uh, vending uh, spaces there. And so there were some people making some food, uh, fried chicken and, of course, French fries. So bought myself some French fries to bring back to Casa de Migrante. And uh, I noticed that by the time I arrived, the girls had begun their farewell party for Surya. Of course, I was invited to join because I came bearing gifts with this giant uh, package of French fries. And so they started feasting on the French fries. And then she was opening each one of the cards and the notes that were in the little gift box and giving all the girls big hugs. And, you know, it was just this beautiful space. I felt so privileged to be there. There weren't any other adults like gathered around with them. It was just kind of their space. And they invited me into it. And it's, like I said, a space that I just haven't lived in or occupied very much. But it just brought me back to thinking about my own nieces. You know, I've got uh, I've got three nieces that are, you know, the 
oldest is Cosette, and then the twins uh, are a couple years younger than her, nine and nine and seven. And so just kind of imagining them spending time with their own friends and the way that they would uh, celebrate each other, maybe celebrate a birthday, or in this case, kind of a farewell party with a friend leaving. So that kind of privileged space of encounter that helped to broaden my own horizons. Speaking of broadening horizons, the guest that we're bringing on today is going to talk about her own horizons have been expanded by her work in ministry here as a nurse midwife. So we're excited to welcome to this episode, Annie Leone, a good friend and a nurse midwife here in the Valley. So stay tuned for that interview coming up next. We are thrilled to welcome to today's episode our good friend, Annie Leone. She is a nurse midwife at the Holy Family Birth Center in nearby Westlaco, and also a care provider at the clinic at the Humanitarian Respite Center, or HRC, run by Catholic Charities, where we often run into her. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's our pleasure. Uh, Maybe to get things started here, you could just uh, share with our listeners a little bit about the Holy Family Birth Center, a little bit about its history and what it does and what it was that brought you there. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Um, First of all, I think I should explain what is a midwife because this is a question we get a lot. That's a great start. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What is a midwife? What is a midwife? What is midwifery or midwifois, <laughs> as Joe likes to say? We've been working Guilty. on that. We've been, We've been workshopping. Working real hard on that pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, a midwife is uh, a care provider for women, basically, um, women and, and newborns. Uh, the word midwife literally means with woman. And so we get to play this special role where we walk with women, care for them, support them through some of the most transformative experiences of their lives, particularly pregnancy, childbirth, uh, the postpartum period. But we also, as nurse midwives, get to care for women across the lifespan. So we provide gynecological care, um, menopausal care, reproductive and sexual health care, uh, pap smears, regular health screenings for women. Um, yeah, so we we really get to uh, be there for women throughout the life as a healthcare provider um, and a, a main support person. It's a great and essential work. Obviously, a company, women, period, and health, uh, health-wise, uh, and also especially when it comes to uh, pregnancy and birthing and things like that. So we know that's obviously a big part of Holy Family Birth Center. So maybe now you could talk to us a little bit about its history and and what what happens there at, at Holy Family and how you ended up down there. Yeah. Yeah, so Holy Family is a very special place. Uh, It's a place that is not really well known to people in the Rio Grande Valley, unfortunately, but is very well known to nurse midwives around the country. I learned about it a decade ago or more when I was in midwifery school because it's just very well known in the midwife network. Uh, It was started almost exactly 40 years ago by a group of Catholic nuns, actually, who had been working in the valley, seeing the need, uh, just a huge number of women in the region not accessing any type of prenatal care. Um, And they saw this need and so petitioned the diocese to grant them some land to start a birth center. Uh, And they really started from, from nothing pretty much built the place themselves over a number of years. 
uh, they started out just doing some home births and then slowly built up this kind of little commune uh, that still exists today. Uh, and the whole point was, yeah, to to be a place that could offer care to anyone um, at any cost. And so it has this very cool history of like starting out as a place where if you didn't have any money to pay for your care, you could essentially barter for your prenatal care. Your husband could come and help mow the lawn, help build the houses. Uh, you could come help cook meals for the community, for the the sisters and the midwives that lived there. Um, and so, yeah, it was really a place that opened its doors to everyone. Uh, a lot of undocumented women living on this side of the border, a lot of women who would cross over from Mexico, which we still have today as well. Um, and 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 open to folks with insurance as well. So really, our doors are open to everyone. So and the other piece of Holy Family that's very cool is that uh, part of the way it's been able to function as a very underfunded place is that uh, it is a site for nurses and midwives who need some training, like new midwives, um, to come and do a fellowship. And so that's partially how it has gained such notoriety in the midwife community is that over the decades of its existence, many, many nurse midwives have come through and done fellowships, you know, for six, nine, 12 months at a time where you come, you live on site. So you're living in this kind of community of midwives and nurses. You're providing this beautiful type of care um, in this out-of-hospital birth setting and getting mentorship from midwives who have, you know, been in the profession for a while. Uh, yeah. So that's a little bit about Holy Family. It sounds like one of the things that are in common between both kind of the the long-term, deeply invested work of the Holy Family Birth Center and also the kind of spot duty at the HRC where people are com coming and going is this this deep care and concern for the individual, right? Of of being attentive to the person who's front of, in front of you, providing personalized care, uh, listening to their story, getting to know their story, and then trying to accompany them as they make choices for their health care. One of the ways that we have a great connection with the work you do at the HRC is because uh, in Renosa, in particular, we work with pregnant women and especially pregnant women who are late-term pregnancy to try to help them find channels to be able to get into the United States in a legal way in order to receive proper prenatal and birthing care. And some of those women end up at the HRC, which is great. And there are other ways that, uh, that you know, there are other women including pregnant women that end up there and, and receive your care and attention, which is really good. But, you know, one of the questions that I just want to ask you, because it's a question I often have in my mind, is, you know, what 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 really happens to these uh, women if they're pregnant and they come into the United States and they're heading off and they're arriving at their, at their final destination? I mean, it, most of them are not staying here in the Valley, so they don't have access to a great place like Holy Family. So where can they go as a newly arrived immigrant who doesn't have health care or a job in health care? What what does prenatal care and birth look like for them? That is a very good question and something that I wonder about myself all the time because the reality is I, you know, over the last four and a half years, I've probably cared for more than 2,000 pregnant women at least, and I don't really often get to know what happens to them. But, I mean, the goal of Migrant Clinicians Network is to get them into a clinic, which is likely going to be a federally qualified health center, you know, the the clinics that are funded by the government to provide care to folks who are uninsured or on Medicaid, um, low resource. Because can you imagine arriving in this country, you don't speak the language, are very insanely complicated. 
and exclusive healthcare system, you know, trying to navigate that without assistance. But yeah, that's a good question, Brian. It's I'm constantly wondering myself what what is happening to these folks. And one thing I feel like I have to point out with respect to that is so many of the women that I see, so many, especially like these days uh, with the surge in Venezuelan moms, is the scenario where they come to me, they're telling me their story, and they're in tears because they just made this long traumatic journey with their partner to the border, the father of their child, and with no warning immediately, you know, they they get into CBP custody, and then all of a sudden they're separated from their partner, and they have no idea of his status, no way to communicate with him. And this is a scenario I'm seeing just over and over and over again. Honestly, I would estimate at this point in time, 50% of the women I'm seeing at least are in that scenario. And that's just an unbelievable situation to be in, to come arrive here, you know, late in your pregnancy, as most of them are, to be separated without any kind of warning or explanation from the father of your child, and then to be, you know, living with this uncertainty and fear of like, well, will I even see him, you know, when or if will I see him again? Will he be at the birth of our child? Will my child meet him? Or, you know, will it be years until that happens? And I don't really know the answer to that. I think, you know, some of them are reunited after the process of their husband being processed by CBP, and some of them are not. And so that's just, I mean, a situation that I'm constantly amazed that we we do that to folks, you know, that our, that our country could do that. Um, it's, it's really, it's really concerning. Yeah. This theme that, that I'm kind of picking up when you're saying this kind of this overall like umbrella of uncertainty um, here at the border when it comes to uh, people doing ministry here. And that, like, I think like with you, with your ministry here, you don't know necessarily when these people will be reunited with their loved ones. You don't know what kind of um, care they'll receive in their next location. All the stuff you don't know. You're not going to get the to close that loop. And yet, you continue. And it's this constant stream of people day after day after day, new faces who are coming in, telling their story. So human faces who, after they tell their story, become even more humanized and you develop this connection of trust, and then you just don't know what happens to, to them. And that could be, that's not an easy part of this work. But it's it's that risk of, of ministry here on the border. Yeah, and, and you guys know, we talk about a lot, there's just, you know, so much trauma in this line of work and uh, so much trauma that these folks face um, and then that we're holding space for all the time. And that definitely is very overwhelming. Um, and, you know, I'm constantly inspired and just amazed by the folks that I'm working with at their resilience. Uh, just cannot even imagine, you know, anyone being in this scenario of having to make the choices that people make when they choose to migrate and facing the situations that they're facing. And then to be pregnant on top of that is just unbelievable. And so, I'm constantly in awe of these pregnant women that I'm working with. Just it's it's really remarkable that they're able to, you know, keep smiles on their faces a lot of the time and and just push through and and they're doing it for their families. And so, you know, I think for me, um, just reminding myself that 
each interaction I have can make the small impact that it can make, you know, and then being a part of building these programs and systems that are hopefully over the long haul going to be making positive change in in the migration system. Um, it's all we can do, right? That's right. I mean, at, at the end of the day, that's all, all you can do is contribute your small part, try to make the experience more human uh, for someone and, you know, continue to do what you can to be a voice for change, right? I wonder among the many people that you have accompanied and attended to and uh, helped to hear their story and give them a, a, a real human interaction. I'm just wondering if there's any story or stories that you want to elevate, someone whose story you kind of want to hold up for us. That is such a hard question um, because, once again, I've, there's been so many women that I've, you know, been able to meet and hear about their story and care for. And it's really hard to just like pick a few that stand out. But there's definitely, you know, some themes um, that come up over and over and over again, which I think are really important to note. I have already mentioned the one scenario of all these women that arrive with the father of their child and then are immediately separated and with no certainty of if they'll be reunited. So that's definitely a situation that stands out to me. Um the scenario of women who are pregnant as a result of sexual assault, which is not an, an uncommon situation that I see. Uh, just really, you know, really intense scenario to be in. Such a complicated emotional situation for so many people. Um, that is not uncommon. Uh, folks who tell me that, you know, I lost my brother or my father or my husband. He was murdered by gangs. Some of them watched this happen, you know, and that was the impetus for them to flee because their own lives were in danger. Uh, that is also not a super uncommon story that I hear. Uh, people who were kidnapped along the way, which I know you all have been hearing so many stories of that recently from the camps in Reynosa and stuff, um, or abused along the way. Uh, people who, you know, made the journey through the Darien Gap, which is just this very dangerous stretch of jungle in Panama um, and telling telling you, you know, yeah, I watched people die along the way with me or one woman who said, you know, we were drinking water out of this part of the river where there were like dead bodies floating in it, stuff like that. Um, and, you know, then there's the very happy stories that I try to center as well of uh, many, many people that are coming to reunite, you know, with their parent who they may have honestly never really known in person. People who are like, yeah, I, I haven't seen my mom in 18 years, you know, since I was three years old. Uh, or my sister who's been here for 10 years. And so those folks just, you know, really, really, obviously such a, a long awaited reunion, so much excitement to be back with their their family members. And so you do get those amazing, just, you know, happy stories as well. But yeah, it's really hard to pick a few that stick out because there's just, you know, the reality is so many people are making this choice to come here and for such, in, you know, intense reasons, right? And and I think that gets lost a lot of the time that people just can't wrap their heads around the stuff that people are facing that caused them to make these choices. And this is not just like, you know, unique for folks to be in these scenarios of another one would be you know, the people who had their family business, that that was their livelihood. And then all of a sudden they started being extorted by gang members and it got to the point where they couldn't pay. And then they were told, you either leave or we kill you, you know, um, stuff like that is a dime a dozen. And so it's hard to pick a few, but yeah, those are things that some stories that stand out. 
so you you bring clearly a uh, a, a very unique and interesting perspective to the board. And so one thing I'm I'm interested in your perspective is well, the way so much public information out there about uh, the border is that there are many stereotypes and many perspectives that just kind of fall through the cracks, many stories that don't get told, many images that never get seen, many ways of thinking that are just totally ignored. How has your understanding of the border um, been altered or enhanced in some way by your perspective as uh, as a midwife and a care provider. My work on the border, you know, has just elucidated even more clearly that migration is a very complicated topic and it's just something that is so poorly understood by the average person. You know, I think that there's so much out there that leads people to, you know, othering other people. And of course, there's so much racism in this world and in this country, Uh, xenophobia, you know, all that stuff. And it's so easy to just get caught up in these modes of thinking of like putting yourself in one camp and these other people in this other camp. And then, you know, being in my position of just sitting with woman after woman after woman every day that I'm at the shelter and hearing their story, it's like these people are exactly like you and me and my parents and my siblings, you know, no matter where on this planet you're living, we all want the same things. We all want to be able to feed our families, you know, have enough food, have shelter, uh, send our kids to school, have them get an adequate education, you know, imagine that our children will be able to like achieve something better in their lives. Um, Safety, just bodily safety, you know, these are the things that anyone anywhere on the earth wants, you know, the main the main motivations for all of us. And so you listen to folks' stories and you realize we're all exactly the same, you know. I hear these women tell me that, you know, they've made the choice to, many of them, to leave kids behind, uh, pregnant to make this journey. I mean, for someone to to make that choice, they're not doing it because they want to. They're doing it because they're compelled by this intense human need to, you know, take care of your family, to have your family survive and thrive. And so I think that people just, you know, at large do not understand this. And we get so caught up in our political silos and our, you know, like sort of othered ways, our black and white ways of thinking and of categorizing people. Um, And, you know, of the fear of something is going to be taken from me if I welcome these outsiders, you know, into my community and my country. Uh, and it's it's just really sad because, once again, the reality is we all want the same things. And any of us out there would make the same choices that these migrants are making to, you know, risk their lives to come make this journey and and migrate here. They're doing it because they want their families to have a better life. And, you know, even personally... My nani and nonno, my my dad's parents, um, migrated from Italy in the 50s, 40s and 50s. Um, why did they do it? They they did it because they wanted their kids to have a better education. They wanted them to grow up with more opportunities. They, they wanted to give them the best life they could, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, so I, I, I really just feel like there's such a, a, a lack of understanding about how 
complicated migration is and how folks who choose to make that decision are not doing it for for no reason. You know, they're doing it for the same reasons that any of us would do something to protect our child or to to care for our family. I'm seeing like a lot of the stories is this kind of motif of suffering and struggle and and work in the hopes of something better in the, in, in the future. And yeah, I mean <laughs> As a, as a man of religion, <laughs> as they say, I I can't help but just want to draw parallels to uh, to heaven. And I think of all these different images that are out there of heaven, all these different uh, ways of understanding heaven and desiring heaven. And I'm going to ask you something that we we've been kind of asking uh, all of our uh, guests this season. Is there a particular image or way of thinking about heaven that particularly appeals to you and speaks to you? That's a good question. I think if I had to say, I think I would probably say, you know, the idea of the entirety of humanity of all people being able to kind of recognize the humanity and everyone else, you know, and just like this idea of everyone loving and welcoming each other. Uh, I think that we just get so caught up in our own selves and our own problems and our own emotions. And it's so easy to like forget to recognize the, the goodness, the pure, like, you know, the God or like the goodness or the humanity in other people and to be quick to judge and, quick to oppress and and all these things and I think yeah I think my idea of heaven is a world in which we all just really acknowledge each other's humanity love each other for the unique beautiful godlike beings that we all are and you know welcome each other and care for each other with open arms I have a question I want to ask. I'm not sure if it's one that I'm even allowed to ask or not. You know, I have friends who are birders and I've been told that like you're never supposed to ask a birder like how many birds they've seen. But what I want to ask you, Hanny, as a midwife, and again, I don't know if this is appropriate, but how many births have you assisted and or attended? Oh, Can I yes. ask that question? You can, you can ask it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sadly, I do not have a totally exact answer for you. <laughs> I am not the most type A person. <laughs> I do not have those you numbers mean you don't have a list written down. Date, time, I do not. Place. <laughs> though, though, it is a feature of any midwifery practice uh, that you always have like a birth log, you know, and it's usually okay. yeah. written as well. Even in this day and age, any even in hospitals, you'll still find a written birth log. Yeah. Wow. In addition to, of course, like electronic records. Sure. But um, so I do intend at some point to go through our holy family. <laughs> birth log. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think in terms of the babies who I personally have caught, and that's the language okay. that midwives use. We don't deliver the baby. The the birthing person delivers the baby, but we catch the baby. Um, so I think I've probably caught close to 250 babies. I think it's between 240, 250. Um, and that's over the time of you know school and my time working in the Bronx and at Holy Family. And then 
in terms of births I've attended, it's been many, many more than that. Mm-hmm. The, the beauty of Holy Family is that once again, you're totally immersed, you're living on site. Um, and so often we're, we're playing various roles in the birth room. So even if I'm not the one playing the midwife that day, I might be, you know, in the, the nurse role or the birth assistant role, or I might just be in the room. I might be precepting the fellow who's there. And so in terms of births I've attended, I've probably attended more like 350 births, I, uh-huh. I would assume. But um, yeah. Well, I can say definitively that that is about, so you've caught about 250 babies. That's about 250 more than Joe and I combined. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You're, you're, you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> doing good. <laughs> you are doing good. You're doing great, you're doing great things here uh, on the border at the birth center and also at the Humanitarian Respite Center. Annie, we just want to thank you for coming on this episode. It's been great to have you here with us. I love you guys. Thank you for having me. It's been such a long time coming, and I'm so happy we made it happen. We made it happen. We did it. (laughs) That's what you do in the podcast. Make (laughs) things happen. (laughs) Well, that wraps up our episode for this week. We're grateful to Annie Leone for joining us. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. You can visit our website at delcamino.org. If you're curious about Jesuit life or know someone who is, visit beajesuit.org to learn more about a religious vocation to the Society of Jesus. This podcast is edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. We'll see you next time on the Jesuit Border Podcast. Que Dios os bendiga.